0: When I was back in England in the summer when uh, George was about in Tunidad, I had to get back because my mum was in a bad way. And um, at that point, things were happening on the electric side with the batteries and the system. So I wasn't actually there to see it all happening. So, so suddenly now, um, you know, six, eight months, a year later, I had a problem. I was installing solar panels, actually, which I did. But I had to understand my electrical system. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately for me, some boat friends nearby who actually run my website now—that's why they're doing it. They were cruiser friends, and I got onto them when I wanted a website. Um, they were helpful in getting me through the electrical side of things, you know, pointing me to places to read up about, you know, lengths of cable runs and voltage drops and all this kind of thing. So um, that was pretty helpful. So yeah, the but. Um, the other thing that I always say to people when they say, well, how ever do you manage to deal with everything, you know, there's so much that can go wrong, I said, yeah, but normally it's only one thing at a time that goes wrong. <laughs> so as you discover maybe that this thing exists on your boat, which I did from time to time, I didn't even know this thing was there, the cause of my problem was this, what's that? So now you find out about it and you read up about it or you get some to about it, because boaters help you, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know so as long as when things break you have the manual and the one thing i've always made sure of anything new on the boat i've always made sure i've got the bit of paper that goes with it Mm -hmm. explaining how to look after it and repair it or whatever and that's so important because we know you can go back to that i mean i've got the entire in the off cabin i have a i don't know bookshelf full of folders and things and i can't believe how many folders there are with all the bits of paper to do with the boat yeah. You know, um, instruments and uh, sails, repairs, uh, engine, anything, you know, I've tried to make sure I've kept it. Because, yeah. you know, how else would I on going up north to Alaska when my engine failed? How ever could I have possibly replaced an injector with no knowledge at all? I was, was just did, about to raise that.
1: Yes, he wrote, I've changed an injector, and I think that's marvellous. And especially an injector or an engine, where you have to be so careful to keep everything pristine and, and clean. Right. So, but I mean, the, the funny story there is
0: when I first started, I was actually looking for the, because I'd come into um, San Francisco earlier that year, I think, and uh, I got the guy there to explain to me all about the injectors and you know, take me through it all. And he was saying to me, this was a Volvo Penta MD-22L engine, and it had, uh, well, most diesel engines, of course, do have orc um, uh, help, as they call it, to see. It'll to us in a minute. Yeah, it will do. Um, so I was looking, he was saying to me that on my engine, uh, uh, it was easier to go for that than it was to go for the injector, and that, that might have been the problem. So I was busily looking for, looking at the manual, okay, here's the... Um, the heat, whatever it is, uh, so I kind of went for it, pulled it out, and I thought, well, I don't know, this looks really just like a straightforward, ordinary bolt to me with a screw thread on it. Put it back quickly, <laughs> have another look at the manual and try and see where it was that I was looking for, you know, get that out. That didn't work anyway, because I couldn't get all four of them. I could get to four or four injectors, it was difficult, but I could get access to them. I don't know what was it, you know, pipes and things were in the way. Mm-hmm. So um, I had to go for the injectors in the end, but I always remember pulling this thing out and looking at it thinking, that doesn't look like anything electric. That is a vault. <laughs> <laughs> Put it back quick. <laughs> I spent three days, you know, I was, I was just drifting around. So it wasn't a problem. I just spent three days doing it. There were people on the radio. This is after my semihadic transpact, uh, getting, you know, I'd done the transpact race down to Hawaii, Kauai from San Francisco, which is brilliant. So many, so many good friends. Very, very helpful to each other. Anyone had a problem, everyone discussed it. Didn't mm. problem. So on my way back up, we were still on the return, almost like the race again. You still had the radio contact and you still had the people on the radio trying to be helpful. Yes. So...
1: Um, yeah, three days, but I've got the engine working. That's good. Awesome. Really yeah. fantastic. <laughs> that would have been I, what I could just imagine when you that fires up the the excitement. I think I think that's marvelous. And, and you talked about there. You mentioned the Transpac from um, uh, San Francisco to Hawaii. Have I got that right? Yeah. It is, yeah. yeah and
0: Hawaii, um, West Island.
1: Yeah, so that's when you started to uh, gather momentum for longer passages on your own and, and get used yeah, to that. Yeah, that was
0: a really, a really good introduction. You know, I, I actually spent half the passage upside down reinstalling my autopilot because that went down. I had to rewire that, and that caused a major problem. And quite a bit of the rest of the time, I suddenly realised that maybe I should be flying my my striking. Uh, non-white sail that I wasn't used to sailing, I kind of nearly went sailing with uh, getting the sock off and getting my cruising chute going my uh, race electric so uh, that was another good learning personal
1: experience yeah it's very good for you that very good, gave me a lot of confidence yeah great great practice and when you're upside down fixing your autopilot and sea, do you get seasick?
0: no, I, I'm lucky I don't get seasick, I can remember when I started I can remember almost five occasions that I did, one or two in particular, and I'm thinking the, one of the times I was feeling, I don't think I actually got, I actually nearly got started vomiting, but I didn't quite. It was actually overnight from the cars over to Sherbrooke when we took a boat um, with uh, you know the two of us with my husband. Um, having just got our day skipper, we were now able to charter a boat in England. So we went over down to Sherbrooke and we were overnight I hadn't um, hadn't stuck myself in or done anything. I thought we were fine. And the boat got a bit ticky with the swell. And suddenly, God, I, I got thrown over to the lifeline on the far side, on the starboard side, and grabbed hold of it. I thought, I'm not going over. I'm not going over. You know, I should have should have stepped in. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I know I, got, I felt crazy then because I think I was getting worried. Yeah. And that was another time we came back. I think when we delivered it back from Sweden, the boat, because um, we did that very uh, convoluted, very lovely uh, delivery trip, we came back towards Portsmouth, and as we were coming up the channel, it gets pretty choppy with the wind over wave, with the tide mm-hmm. turning, and quite often a westerly wind, and uh, the wind had got up, the chop was getting up, and we were coming towards Portsmouth, and it was really getting quite nasty. And my husband at that time, unfortunately was dead key, no oh, no, we don't reef down, the boat's meant to be healing. And I'm thinking, no, I think boats are designed to stand upright, not to be healing over. But we neither of us, it got so bad we neither of us were happy to go forward to reef down. Yeah. So we were really suffering. And I went down below thinking, well if I navigate and I'll just stay down and take my mind off this. That was bad. That was a wrong thing to do because I was worried, I was down below, I wasn't out in the fresh air, I wasn't looking at the horizon and I really did feel so crazy. So um, yeah, but apart from those times, there you know, a few times when I got really worried about something wasn't in my control. and I think that's an important thing as well.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't get seasick. I haven't done seasick. Oh, that's good. Ever. That that's great. And yeah, I, I Very yes,
0: lucky.
1: I think I think you're right. Um, for me, with big voyages, I could feel slightly seasick the night before and that was definitely to do with once I was worried but you know you're a little bit anxious have I thought of everything is everything ready and I found that as time went on it lessened because of that I was more used to it and then when you get to know your boat inside out I think that helps with seasickness as well you know having the right training and knowledge that you know you you got a good chance that everything's going to be fine it it helps with that seasickness um i think
0: it's really really important to have confidence in your boat if you haven't got your if you can't trust your boat to look after you you may as well not go on a long passage because anything when the wind gets up you're going to get start getting so worried i mean i've come across so many women that have said to me you know ask me questions about you know should they be usually with their husband on the boat or in a partner and i'm saying to them you know, can you take charge of the boat if your husband has a heart attack, or God forbid, whatever. And, you know, and so often they've just been galley slaves, basically. Mm. And they've been getting so worried about the conditions. I'm saying, well, yeah, of course, because you haven't got to understand your boat to realise that your boat will be fine because you've not been in control and controlled the boat in all these conditions to realise, well, yeah, I just have to do A, B, C and the boat will be fine. And that therefore raises your fears because you know that some as of as you don't do something stupid. And even if you do, the boat will probably stay upright, yep. might get into a bit of a mess, but you um, just put it right. So, um, yeah, being able to do the sailing thing uh, equally with your partner is so important. And having faith in the boat, you know, before you left dock, that you prepared that boat and she's ready for whatever journey you're doing. And you've planned it and you've got a backup. Yeah. You know, they're all so important. And then, but having said that, so many cruising friends tell me that they always, however good, you know, however long term cruisers they are, they always, the first day or two, they know they're going to get seasick, yeah. but then it'll settle down and they'll be fine. Yeah. Because they want to do the cruising and go for a longer journey. And that's why, of course, it's not a good idea to go on a passage of just one or two days all the time, because you never get over the seasickness if yeah. you encounter it. I do, I do <laughs> enjoy it.
1: Yeah, I can understand that. It took Noel and I always a few days to settle into our rhythm when um, when we set off. Um, I, I totally agree with everything you say there. It's a big passion of mine to help educate people and um, you know give them that confidence to to enjoy it more. And you did marvelous thing by taking on these longer voyages and getting ready, and that that led you on to going for world records. I, I can understand why, but I want you to tell me why. What, why did you think this is what I've got to do? Well,
0: um, my first circumnavigation, navigation, of course, in 07, was 07, 08, was from Mexico back to Mexico. But It was a cruising style, stopping everywhere, enjoying where I was, coming to Cairns in 07, going up and around the, inside the reef up to uh, Darwin, on to South Africa and so on having a really great time meeting up with people, but of course losing my boat at the end and getting a new one subsequently. Well, the new one was being fitted out, as I've already said, in Sweden. And the plan was, in fact, that to to avoid tax problems, because I didn't want to tax the boat, it was way too expensive. The boat was already getting very expensive. So to avoid tax problems, I had the boat delivered down to England, and then I would take off within two months, allowed a two-month window, to prepare a new boat and then get the hell out of the EC. So uh, that's what I did. I went Mm -hmm. to Guernsey, which is duty free outside the uh, EU area. Mm -hmm. And that's why she's going to Guernsey registered actually. Anyway, so um, there I was getting all these things done on the boat and looking, of course, at that time. Oh, uh, where are we now? 09. Yeah, 08 would have been a Vendée Globe. So 08 into 09. So January, February, the Vendée Globe races were going around. Sam Davis and Dika Farney were in that race. And there they are also going around the world in a race, but solo, non stop, unassisted. And I kind of just thought, well, I've been around the world the once in my boat, and I've done a certain navigation the last 60 miles. Um, I wonder what it would be like to do it non stop you know, go around Cape Horn. You know, this would be quite a challenge, you know, this would be quite something to do. And so that was really all that was in my mind was actually mm. to try to go around non stop and just for the hell of it, you know, just see how it is, see what it's like. See whether I could manage it. Um, so that was what got me going. It wasn't It was no record in my uh, mind's eye. Uh, just the challenge of seeing whether or not I could emulate them and get around in my boat
1: without stopping anywhere.
0: Uh, so that's what got me going.
1: Awesome. <laughs> but I, I really want to delve into that a bit. But um, if we're able to re- rewind a little bit, um, so you lost your boat on a beach, which sounds to me terrifying are you, are you able to tell us what happened well the entire story is twice over on
0: my website Anyone know, wants to go to my website and read under the article okay. so i lost it in what was it 08 uh in fact it was June the 19th of 2008 i know the date precisely that i lost my boat i was basically finishing my self navigation it was a fabulous tropical night. I would left Acapulco to return to Ziguanejo in Mexico, where I'd started 15 months later earlier. And from Acapulco up to Zijuanejo, you've got a long line of sandy surf beaches. You know, quite a big surf area, a bit deserted mostly, just a little bit of fishing, your know, fishing village. So I left Agapurco at night. I left at sunset, in fact, because it was a 100-mile journey. It was clearly an overnight. So, OK, if I leave near sunset, I'll get there before sunset the next day, guaranteed. And so therefore, I'd make a day for landing to finish off my self-navigation. So that was what I did. I left. And it was such a beautiful, tropical night. Unfortunately, there wasn't any wind. So although I had the main up in hope, as one does, I was actually motor sailing, so-called. I am motoring, the sail up. Uh, running five miles off at about five knots, thinking I was fine under pilot, And um, by two o'clock in the morning, I thought, well, I, I don't know, ladies sleeping, not getting any night is not a good idea. I want to go down and get some laps. So I set my alarm for 45 minutes, went down below. Next thing I know, it's such a warm night, I had the hatch open. I'm getting woken up with waves breaking over me. We were on a surf beach. We were getting taken by the surf and pushed onto the beach. And I obviously closed the hatch in a hurry, ran up on top, grabbed the wheel. I can still visualize the wheel did nothing because the motor was running. I thought, well, I can just run, get off the beach and motor away. Couldn't do anything. We were well aground already. Mm-hmm. We had, um, the motor wasn't taking me anywhere. So um, next thing I decided to do was uh, we'll set the heat bird off, which was never heard by farmer farmer's first garden in the UK, interestingly. Um and dark night before dawn, no one around, not even any lights. Just being pushed by the you know, flip flop with the boat being mm. pushed up the beach. As the boat flipped down towards the ocean with the um, water leaving the beach in a hurry, I'd get water getting into the cockpit and yeah. down below. The and then when we flopped the other way she'd go bang on the wet sand. Uh you know, so, so I thought I've got to try and get, how do I stop the flip-flopping motion because so I was worried the boat was going to crack up. I assumed I'd get pulled off, you know, mm. to stop that. The only thing I could think of, well, I've got to line up the beach somehow. And we got pushed up quite a way by then. Um, so I started, the only thing I'd think of was to use the anchor chain and get that up the beach somehow. So I got the anchor down. I released all the chain, started releasing a load of it. So the next thing I've got to do is actually get off my safe boat yeah. onto the beach with the seas washing in and out. But mm-hmm. we have, were gradually getting pushed further and further up the beach. I think it was a, a spring tide, a high spring, what we, what we call here a king tide, which is yeah. a new term to me when I got to Australia. i oh. never used the term king tide before. Anyway, so it, it was a, um, a spring high tide, and so we were pushed quite a way up by then. So I eventually came, got down uh, I nearly got washed away. I've still got a scar on my leg I'm looking at now where I actually got caught by barnacles on the hull. Oh. I nearly got washed away because fortunately the chain was dangling from my bow, right? And as I got washed past the boat, I put my arm out oh. and, the chain and the hook of my arm and saved me getting washed out to sea because there was no one around. That would have been it. Finished. That was a bit close. I was, I've been, I've had several close oh. <laughs> I can write another book about, a cat has nine lives, I think I've got 11 or 12 or 13. <laughs>
1: That's extraordinary, I just, I, I just can't imagine. Fishman fisherman came by,
0: helped me get the, the anchor up the beach, you know, with the chain, and, um, and so we stopped the boat flopping around. But no it's, it's a long story very yeah. but I
1: say, it's all written up on my, on my okay you can get more details yeah. there but how do you deal with that when your mind you know you've 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 prepared you've done a lot of miles you've got your boat ready and now it's sort of starting again how do you it's do that way. mentally i just
0: had to i just had to crush the emotion because this is my soulmate you know she looked after me so well um i put such a lot into her we've done so much together and here she was you know i'm trying to get everything off her i mean the mexicans were great they were to help most of them not all most of them were really helpful mm-hmm. trying to help me get stuff off my boat salvage it um and a year later i was sent to tv the tv people local came by because i was a big story of the day and um took you know tried to talk to me and showed pictures of my boat a year later one of the mexicans sent me a picture the TV that he snapped off the TV screen. They went back to the beach where my boat would come down. But of course, being a surf beach, it was fairly wet. And even while I was there, over ten days, getting stuff off the boat, trying to retrieve stuff, she was sinking. Yeah. A year later, that much of her mast top was showing. She'd wow. gone right down under the wet sand. She's gone into this into abysite.
1: Wow. Quite amazing. So yeah. very
0: sad. I mean, for me to be inside the boat, she leaned over. She gained a hole in her side. And I thought someone had actually made to make sure she didn't go. Um, Inside, she was filling up with water and sand. I had to retrieve my clothes. I suddenly realised that flip-flops and a T-shirt and a shorts were not the thing to be living in forevermore. I'd better retrieve some clothing. So I went to my aft cabin to retrieve my clothing. It was under wet sand. I had to dig into the sand to get my clothes out. But they were helping me on the beach to take it up. No, very, very sad. And a lot of stuff that I, I lost, personal stuff, my life yeah. I lost, of course, you know, for my time in that. Um, but I say, I, in order to survive it, I just had to crush the emotion and just get on with the job. You know, we have got, got to get our priorities here, try and save yourself and save what you can off the boat. Yeah, well it's done. Nice now on rider 2, I have a lot of the things that I saved off from rider 1. Good. So
1: the rider two feels a bit like a big sister to the rider one. Nice. Kind of a family connection. <laughs> yeah. Good. And yeah. so you've had you've had this experience. You've had a lot of sadness, and you've managed to push forward. Um, and now you have a new boat that's that new and improved because you've learned a lot from your last one. And now you're facing attempts at. Uh, around the world you've, you've had your cruise where you, you've stopped at a lot of wonderful places and that's been great to set you up mm. now you're attempting unassisted um no support team no shore-based support team and non-stop so I can imagine that the some of the I can imagine some of the hard work um, I haven't done it so I can't imagine it all but getting the boat ready and everything you need physically as well but what about mentally you've got this long stretch of alone did you give that some thought of how you're going to cope um, mentally well i think at this point the
0: ssb radio is what comes to the fore to answer that question because with the radio i was in contact with people all the time i mean in my cruising up and down the coast between mexico and canada which i've done for several years before I took off finally on that non-stop attempt, I'd made a lot of friends in Canada, California, the US. And I'd uh, got into a lot of cruiser nets and one-hand radio nets. So as I was leaving and coming down the North America coast, oh my God, I could have been on about four or five nets in the morning, yeah. talked to people that I had already made friends with over the radio, or on the cruiser nets, friends that I knew from Mexico or California with their boats. So I had that support, if you like, and I knew already that um, well. Starting off, getting the vote ready, I have to say that I was kind of um, adopted, as you might say, by the Royal Victoria Yacht Club up in uh, Victoria, up in BC,
1: yes. and they were amazingly
0: supportive and helpful and friendly, lovely, friendly club. Actually, um, they helped me a lot, you know, with getting ready. Their members. So um, gave me free more. they gave me free They gave me a I stories. I've still got stuff up there. Um, they, they were amazing. So um, that was a great help. Um, so, yeah, so thinking, obviously, I had to plan my route and read up a little bit about what that involved. Mm. But in the main, you know, I just felt, well, okay. I mean, I've often said to people when they're thinking, getting worried about making a long passage, if you've made a two- or three-day passage, you're ready for a longer one because once you've gone three days, you're into sailing ocean mode. Yeah. You know you can stay as long as you like out at sea now because basically you're into the mindset uh, and that you know, you're into running the boat. So if you've done three days, well, why not do ten days? Yeah. You know, why not go up to the Marquesas do a three week? It's no different. You're just extending your voyage. So for me, the non-stop element was a matter of I've got to make sure obviously that the boat is as well-maintained as I can make her. Mm. I've got to have a load of tools and spares ready for any emergency because things are definitely going to break. I had no idea what would break, but I knew that they would. Something was going to break, probably at regular intervals, so we have got to be ready for that. And then um, the water, I had a desalinator. So so long as I had prepared my boat, and I was, yeah, I was ready for rough weather, I had, um, my reefing is... One quarter, half, and three quarters of the sail area on my reef, so they're pretty deep reefs. Yeah. So, in fact, when I ran my third reef, for instance, it was effectively a trysail. Yeah. I had already learned from the first boat, I'd got a staysail um, on the first boat, which, it was a hanged on one using a removable little force stay. And I discovered quite soon that when you came to the point when you really needed that staysail in strong conditions, you became a bit dubious about and worried about going forward in strong conditions to set it. Yeah. So in the new boat, I had a furling stay sail put in place. But I could furl that down to a, a storm jib size. Yeah. So that Fantastic. made things really easy if you're in really st- stormy conditions. I could now reduce my main to try to uh, third reef, deep third reef, effectively a tri-sail. I could reduce my stay sail to effectively a storm jib in those positions. So and I very definitely when my boat was in build, I refused to have a, a, a furling main because I've seen people struggling in Hamble Point. One of my memories, vivid memories, looking over guys, three guys on a harbour grassy with a furling main, cursing like mad because it got creased in the main and they were having problems getting it furled in and out. And I thought, no way do I want that problem. Mm-hmm. So when I heard the boat fitted out, I said, no, I want slab reefing. I want to have the, um, the culling up the neck, the uh, beef's neck hook still there. And I want to be able to jam off, uh, I want the jammers at the end of the lines, ready for jamming off them at the mast. And I want to do, so though I had the lines laid back, in a fallback position mode, I could go back. <clears throat> I still had the winches on the mast. I wanted to be able to go back to mast reefing if everything else had failed, going back along the hoop so and again fallback 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 what's the fallback yeah. what's your backup of the fallback position that's exactly way. it
1: it's about looking at all your systems and okay that's working now what if it doesn't what am i going to do yeah i go, go down i go
0: down i go down to the boys down there the guys working on the boat and say okay when we turn upside down yeah is that going to work you yeah. if when we turn i mean by now they knew what i was planning Right, wow. and I knew that I would had experience of other my other boat, so that was like you know if things you know and this is how people should you know whatever you know, if you're not even not on a coastal passage maybe but even then things can get nasty but if you're going on any longer journey when your boat turns upside down what's going to happen? Mm. Okay, I had to put locks in all, all my openings in the in the uh, in the cabin sole, but opening they just they just lifted. Yeah. My fish top lifted. I had yeah. to lock them down, ready for when for bad conditions. You know, if, if I had locked my fish top and my dry locker, all those cans in the dry locker, my God, I would they would have been lethal missiles.
1: Yeah, you know, absolutely. I had to
0: lock everything down that I could. Find a way to do it because it didn't come like that originally.
1: Yeah, we did the same on our boats. Um, thought about we had to put locks on, you know, on, the, on your floor, all those boards you just lift up, well, they're going to be lethal yeah. if you're upside down. Yeah. And I, it really interesting your comments about the HF, the long-range radio. I'm a huge fan of that. For me, that was really important on board. And, and like yourself, we did lots of skeds. And that was important to me. And in one of your blogs, you talked about when your computers broke, your satellite phone broke, um, but you did have the HF radio and you used Weatherfax, much the same we did. When you set out, if you're going to set out again or nowadays, do you still have your HF radio?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things I've got to do, though, is um, replace the line down from my backstay to my tuner. Because mm. that clearly was the reason why at the end of my last server navigation my radar failed. I knew what the problem was, I tried to replace it, but as I took away that line to replace it, which I did, I could see that what I was connecting it to was corroded. And so, oh, not surprising, yeah. I yeah. mend that time, my repair didn't work. Um, unfortunately, when I had my boat re rigged ready for that, that non stop server navigation, the rigger, and I learned too late to do anything about it, he put, you know, because what do radios do? They emit radiation, and you don't want to get too close. So what did he do with that, that connection? He put it up high. But well, I'm only small. I couldn't then reach up easily to do no. anything with that connection. The only reason when I was coming back a few days away from finishing to get through it was when I was in a flat calm, and I had a crate that I could put upside down on the back of the aft deck to get just about reach wow. high enough. Get to that place. Well, you couldn't do that other than in a flat car. No,
1: no. <laughs> so,
0: no. I, I really, that connection needed to be lower down. Yeah. With a view to reaching oh. it. No one's going to be there while I'm talking. I'm going no. be down below. Yes. <laughs>
1: That's right. Thank <laughs> you.